Howdy, folks. Welcome back to this week's episode of Venture Pill. Spring has sprung down here in Austin, and we're excited to get into this week's dose. We sure are, and Cambium Carbon raised a $3.2 million seed round to repurpose our city's fallen trees. Fresh off of a $10 million Series A, ShopThing is redesigning the shopping experience with live streaming influencers. And First Base raised a $50 million Series B led by Kleiner Perkins to facilitate a smooth onboarding experience for remote and hybrid workers. He's rounding First Base and they're sending him home! (laughs) And WorkRamp just raised $30 million in Series C funding to fuel business success through education. Glad to have you back in town, Brandon. The energy is absolutely palpable today, and we've sure got a healthy dose for you guys. Let's get right into it. You see here, kid? You gotta just go for it. Don't think about what comes after or what came before. You just gotta bend your knees, take a deep breath, and jump. This is Venture Pill with your hosts, Sam and Brandon. We're here to prescribe you your weekly dose of venture capital and startup news to keep you informed in the evolving world of venture. All right, first story Sam and I wanted to cover in this week's episode is Cambium Carbon, who recently raised $3.2 million in seed funding in a round led by MAC Venture Capital and supported by Soma Capital, as well as Joe Tsai, the co-founder and executive vice chairman of Alibaba, as well as Revolutions Rise and Alumni Ventures' very own Blue Ivy Ventures. Now, there's an old saying or sort of a riddle that goes, if a tree falls in a forest and nobody is around to hear it, did it make a sound? Classic riddle. Classic riddle, but here's a little twist on it, a a little cambium carbon twist. If a tree falls in a city and nobody is there to repurpose the wood from that tree, what happens to it? Where does it go? (laughs) That's a classic (laughs) riddle, too. Well, I'm glad you asked, because actually 36 million trees fall in cities every year, leading to 12 million tons of wood waste that enters municipal landfills every year. Enter Cambium Carbon, who uses its software as a service to salvage the wood from these fallen trees and partners with local wood shops to repurpose that wood into products like benches, coffee tables, desks, you know, really wood essentials. You got to respect wood. Shout out Larry. I respect wood. (laughs) Furthermore, 15% of these product sales from the repurposed wood would go into supporting local planting of new trees in areas where they are most needed to build healthier communities in terms of air quality and cooling benefits. So Cambium Carbon works with a network of arborists and millers. Sam and I actually both just discovered that an arborist is a tree surgeon. So shout out to all the arborists out there. Oh yeah, scalpel. (laughs) Saw. (laughs) So Cambium Carbon works with the arborists and millers to divert this waste stream, upcycling this these fallen trees in the cities into carbon smart wood. And you may ask, what is carbon smart wood? Carbon smart wood is wood made from locally salvaged trees, processed by local millers and turned into beautiful products that last for generations. Clients who buy carbon smart wood 
are directly benefiting the environment by preventing trees from ending up in landfills and reducing carbon emissions through local processing, as opposed to having to drive these trees over to a landfill, creating gas emissions and other carbon emissions. Therefore, Carbon Smart Wood is a reliable, sustainable, and unique material with an incredible story to tell. Indeed, and, and Carbon Smart Wood, we should say, is a trademark of Cambium. So it's their product of this recycled wood that you know they can use in marketing and sales pitches to these local woodworkers, uh, furniture builders, whomever they are selling this wood to. And I'm wondering if the wood that they're selling, this carbon smart wood, I'm wondering how it compares to the cost of the wood that these artisans, these woodworkers would typically be purchasing to create their products. I'm imagining it comes at a slight premium compared to traditional Mm -hmm. wood sources. But at the same time, there's this added benefit of the environmental cause behind it. And that can be used in marketing. A lot of millennials and Gen Z really enjoy purchasing products from companies with a greater mission. And it comes back to this 15% of profits that Cambium is reinvesting to plant more trees. It's something that they can offer to their customers is, hey, build with our wood, you'll help the environment. You can also use that in your marketing to your customers. This was built using carbon smart wood and you're helping the environment by purchasing my table that was built using repurposed wood from you know, your local city. It's true. And it, it reminds me of some initiatives that companies like Tom's and even Bomba's Socks have taken recently, which is buy a pair of these shoes and we donate one to underprivileged kids in need or something like that, which, yes, leads to a higher cost for a pair of socks, for instance. But first of all, Bomba Socks, best socks in the world, mm. leads to a higher pair, leads to a higher cost for a pair of socks. But you get the additional kind of a mental benefit, I'd say, in knowing that you're donating to charity, essentially, and basically just helps the consumer feel better about what they're buying. Yeah. And we should note, we don't actually know the details of the costs of this carbon smart wood. It could very well be less expensive given the savings that they're getting from a typical supply chain of wood. Like, I'm imagining if we're just going to speculate and think about how a tree turns into a table. I'm guessing it takes a lot of transportation, carbon emissions, processing, whereas, you know, we cut out a lot of that transportation with wood that is locally sourced that would have otherwise ended up in a landfill. I imagine there is a lot of cost saving there, but it probably still is a premium product. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear their sort of the cost behind it. Yeah, that being said, given that it's locally sourced and they're making these incredible products with local wood shops, I don't know, maybe you and I will purchase a a desk or something made with carbon smart wood. I like the name, and it makes me think about uh, from farm to table, like a restaurant. Right. But in this case, it's from street to actually in a table, (laughs) not on top of it. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I think the action of preventing a tree from ending up in a landfill and in fact helping with reforestation is something everyone can get behind. Amazing. We love trees. That was news to me learning about this company that that many trees for one fall in a city and for two end up in a landfill. That makes no sense. Yeah. So kudos to these guys and certainly close to home since 
it's an alumni ventures portfolio company. We'll be excited to see them grow and learn more about the, the business behind it. Right. So the next story that Sam and I wanted to cover is a company called ShopThing, which recently raised a $10 million Series A led by Origin Ventures with participation from Pritzker Group and Interplay. ShopThing essentially is an app that aims to redesign the way that people shop by creating a highly curated live shopping experience. I think it's easiest to break it down by explaining the two sides of the app. There's one side, which is for the shoppers, and there's another side, which are for consumers. Shoppers can basically be thought of as influencers, and consumers are everyday people like Sam and I looking to buy a new pair of shoes. The shoppers act like influencers and go into stores and begin live streaming to showcase items that are available for purchase. Then these shoppers select items they like, explain what they like and why they recommend it, and then provide any additional info that you may need about pricing or quantity. And on the flip side, consumers get to enjoy the shopping experience from home and ask the influencers specific questions pertaining to sizing, sales, and so on. They also get exclusive access to certain deals that shoppers find and can purchase clothes on the spot through the app. Yeah, and this company was founded back in 2018 by Maggie Adami Boynton after she discovered this concept of live shopping when she, I think, saw someone on Instagram doing it and then after further research realized that it was actually a pretty popular thing overseas in Asia. And she wanted to bring that same experience to North America. This is a Canadian-based company. They're going to be looking to grow this within the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. And they already have 500,000 users across North America. Yeah. And so ShopThing charges a 20% fee to account for the shopping service, as well as the shipping and logistics. As I mentioned, you can check out and purchase right through the app, and it'll arrive right to your door. I imagine part of that 20% fee is kicked back to the influencers who are actually doing the live shopping. But I think I really want to highlight a couple trends that we can speculate about this company. One being that this live shopping might be the evolution of online shopping, which is already so popular, only became increasingly more popular throughout COVID and is extremely addicting, to be honest. It's easy to just kind of spend time clicking through clothes. And the second trend that I think it highlights is that the line between shopping and actually paying is getting thinner and thinner. And this is something that we first saw with Amazon where you could add things to a cart and then click to buy. And now I feel like this has evolved into instantaneously buying. Yeah. I think there's a crazy stat about how much money is lost due to the last step of the checkout process where people are just leaving things in their cart and then they don't end up pulling the trigger. Mm -hmm. So for any company to be able to make it that much easier, even just incrementally a little bit easier for someone to hit purchase, to actually give their credit card information and buy something, leads to millions if not billions of dollars for some of these companies. And I think you know, there is an element of that trend in ShopThing's business model, which is to make a new style of shopping, but also bring in this social aspect of incentivizing people to buy something on the spot like they would if they were shopping, but with the same convenience factor of being able to click right now, I want to buy this. It's kind of combining the aspects of in-person shopping with the speed and ease of online shopping. 
Yeah, I mean, I think they're making this as frictionless of a checkout process as possible. And like you said about the social component, I could see a world where people are just spending hours just watching people shop. And maybe they buy some things along the way, but it's also just a form of entertainment. And yeah. if you find an influencer that you really resonate with or is really funny or has a keen fashion sense, that's just more potential purchases down the line that shop thing capitalizes on. Yeah, they only have about 100 shoppers on the platform right now, which to me, and we were talking about this earlier, <laughs> that ratio is seems a little bit ridiculous to me. 500,000 consumers to 100 shoppers only on the platform. I imagine they're going to want to decrease that ratio quite significantly if they're going to you know, want people to be able to buy things. Because if there's 1,000 people watching it and there's only so many products available for like this sale that's going on for right. these shoes. Like I can't quite envision how that works and how that ends up making money for them. So they said their goal with this funding is to get to about 500 shoppers by the end of the year, which to me is a much better critical mass. It'll be cool to see if and when they can get there. Right. And I think that that's a good segue to explain what else they plan on using this funding for, which includes expanding into more marketplaces. As of now, they're in about eight markets, I want to say, covering New York City, L.A., Miami, some of those huge cities, but they still want to continue expansion. I think up to 15 cities is what the, is the goal yeah. they set, as well as creating a membership platform, which will mm. certainly be interesting to see. And maybe that will help with the getting access to specific deals, right. um, kind of tearing out the, custom, the consumers within the app. More exclusivity. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the power users of the platform, they're going to want to be able to monetize those folks instead of letting them use it for free. Uh, of course, there is that transaction fee, but a monthly subscription makes a lot of sense for something like this. Right. And just as a, as a note, the target audience, according to Maggie Adami Boynton, is a busy female somewhere between the ages of 25 and 45 who's looking for the convenience of not having to shop on her own, but also loves online shopping. I think, one, that's certainly a, a large addressable market, but I think that could expand. It certainly could. Yeah. I mean, I'd certainly be interested in something like this. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I just think it comes down to the stage that they're at. They have to focus in on a nice target market. And the expansion opportunity, you're right, is pretty massive because they can get different kinds of influencers on the platform or shoppers, which will then in turn attract different kinds of consumers. And it all comes down to this sort of network effect that we've talked about in other episodes where there's two sides to this marketplace, the shoppers and the consumers. They're going to start with one atomic network, and it, it also has to do with geography. But to take that out of the equation, they're basically starting with women 25 to 45 as their initial market where they can prove the concept, grow it out, and then repeat the model get other types of influencers and then a new type of category, whether it's, you know, males 20 to 35 who like sports and active wearers, something like that. Yeah. So a lot of room to expand. It should be exciting to see how they can grow it out and if they can prove the concept and then repeat the model. That's kind of what you look for if, if you're a venture capitalist in a business like this. Is this something that can be proven and then scaled out? Exactly. That's certainly the blueprint, and we will be eager to see how ShopThing expands in the coming years. Definitely. 
Yeah, and the next company we wanted to cover today is First Base, which recently raised a $50 million Series B round led by Kleiner Perkins. Now, this company is what they call an employee experience management platform. It's a software service that helps companies onboard remote staff, specifically making sure that all of their work from home essentials are good to go. They handle the hardware selection, the shipment, and if need be, retrieval and management as well of all these items. Think computers, monitors, ergonomic seating. I actually majored in ergonomics. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) We got an ergonomist over here. In in training. (laughs) Ergonomist um, in training. And also lighting, exercise equipment. So all the essentials that make working from home, you know, a great setup for remote employees. As we all know, the pandemic hit and all of a sudden companies had to, on a dime, figure out how to provide their employees with a good work from home setup so that they could keep operations running smoothly. You might think that this company was founded in 2020, right? I sure did. Yeah, no, they actually founded the company in 2019. So pretty, pretty good timing, I would say. Timing is everything. We've, we've said this before. But right. Yeah, incredible timing. Who knows how the company would have done had the pandemic not hit. I think it still was probably a rising trend. But hey, we're here now and the whole world is well aware of remote work. And this company is on the right side of that trend. It just remains to be seen how the world adjusts to this new style of work. Right. You and I both have only been in the workforce for about two years. So in the two jobs I've had, I've, I've onboarded virtually. Fortunately for me, it was a pretty smooth onboarding process, but you can, I can definitely imagine how difficult it is for some smaller companies that have a lot of remote employees throughout the country, how a platform like this could be extremely handy and could really be providing an invaluable service. Yeah, I mean, it's a big headache if you think about it to be able to organize all the logistics, get the right things for each individual because I don't know about you, like I have my certain preferences with my monitor set up. It would be awesome if I could get like a new chair or something <laughs> like that. Like that that makes the onboarding experience pretty cool and memorable and special for somebody who's joining a company where, you know, in a traditional setting they'd be meeting people, they'd be getting a good feel for the company culture. But when you're joining a company from your home office or from your bedroom, you don't get any of that. And so I feel like in a sense, First Base is making the onboarding experience special because you get to choose uh, from their platform based on what, of course, your company is offering. You get to choose what you want for your work from home setup. And if it's cool stuff like exercise equipment or special lighting, if you're someone who's on a lot of sales calls like myself, like that would be pretty cool. So yeah, as you can imagine, this company has skyrocketed. They've multiplied their revenue by 16 in the last year, which is incredible. They served mainly at the start startups, you know, companies like the one that I work for that, you know, maybe employ anywhere from 20 to 200 people. They don't necessarily have somebody that's dedicated to employee onboarding in a remote setting, or they certainly didn't when the pandemic hit. And so to be able to outsource that to first base, makes a lot of sense. And they've since grown to add customers even beyond the startup size, much larger with the hundreds or even over a thousand employees. I think they have at least one Fortune 500 company as a customer. So they're growing, they're adding more products to their offering. 
they're going to use this funding to double their headcount by the end of the year. And I imagine continue selling to those bigger ticket companies for larger contracts. And this spawns the question of how prominent remote work versus hybrid work will be moving forward. According to a recent Monster Intelligence Future of Work 2022 survey, 43% of employers think that hybrid model is the way of the future, and 40% said that flexible work options help them retain talent. So we're definitely seeing these major shifts towards working either remotely or in some kind of hybrid model, whereas people five years ago, the, the norm was you go to work every day, you commute both ways, and you know, having an office is a requirement for every company. Yeah, and I think everyone or almost everyone would agree the world is not going to be the same as it was before the pandemic. It's just a matter of how different it will be. And I think that remains to be seen. But in my opinion, I think that the survey speaks to it to get and retain the best talent, especially for tech companies and software companies. You're going to have to offer at least some sort of remote working flexibility, whether that's a hybrid model or fully remote. I think the best talent will end up flocking towards those companies that offer that flexibility. It's something that people have gotten used to and realized, hey, we can be pretty efficient this way and we can still have in-person meetups, you know, on a quarterly basis or something like that to get that in-person vibe because you can't replace what it's like to be in an office with somebody, to have that work culture, to have that teamwork. You know, you can't necessarily replicate that with a work from home setup. So some sort of combination of it, I think, is what companies will eventually uh, settle on. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the industry, but I think a value prop for, like you said, people in tech or software or IT, definitely a big value prop or value add to them is being able to work from home and enjoy that flexibility. Whereas someone who's more sales oriented, like you and me, and we're also just people people. People persons. <laughs> we're a couple of people persons. So you and I might enjoy and do better at our, be more productive being in office, but there are certainly some industries where there's minimal, if any, difference in terms of total productivity, whether you're in office or you're remote. Either way, you're pretty locked in, you know, headphones in, programming away all day. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so Interplay, if you're listening out there, my managers, I'd love an ergonomic chair and some <laughs> work from home <laughs> exercise equipment. What's your work from home situation right now? My work from home setup consists of one monitor with my work computer provided by the company, as well as a keyboard and a mouse. No, nothing crazy, just, just mm -hmm. a simple setup. Uh, but I enjoy working from home. I really like it. I'm comfortable there. I got uh, our buddy Josh's old chair that he left behind when That's he moved out of Austin. So what a steal. I can just channel his inner creative juices whenever yeah. I'm doing my work. No, I, I like my setup. Uh, I've never been like a fancy work setup kind of guy. I don't have any like a microphone or a special lighting or anything like that. But those things do make the difference if it looks a little bit more professional if it keeps you more engaged and makes you feel like you're in a work setting, because I think that's one of the main criticisms of remote work for people that say they don't do work very well when they can't separate their personal life from their work life. I think a company like this helps separate it more because it makes it feel more like an office as opposed to getting on your laptop at your kitchen table and mm -hmm. doing your work. Like that doesn't feel like work as much as if you were to go into an office. 
So in a sense, it is bridging that gap a bit. Yeah, I will say building up on that, I think one of my complaints from working from home, which I used to do more so, now I'm in office mostly, but one of the biggest complaints about working from home is that it really blurred that line between work and home, obviously. Leisure. Yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> shout uh, out Wander. Shout out Wander. But I was basically working in my bedroom and obviously I had a desk, but when you're waking up and walking two feet to your desk and your bed is two feet away, I, I don't know, I, I ended up struggling in the work from home environment. Are you currently fully remote or you're hybrid? I'm hybrid. We have the option to go into our office, but half the company works remotely elsewhere, not in Austin. So, you know, the company was actually remote first mm. before the pandemic hit. So I think that's a little bit of a difference between our company and others. But what what is your work from home setup? Like, do you think if you had more like cool gadgets and things that would make your desk better, would, would that move the needle for you? Um, well, let me let me set the scene with my yeah. work from home office. I have your standard MKM, meaning monitor, keyboard, mouse, mm. compliments of Alumni Ventures, <laughs> classic acronym. I actually last Amazon Prime Day splurged, got myself a stand up desk and a somewhat ergonomic chair. Mm. Although we're gonna, you know, we're gonna need to consult the ergonomists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I do like my setup, but again, it's just as I mentioned. I need that separation between work and home. Otherwise, I find myself being decreasingly productive at home because I get distracted with things to do, chores and whatnot at home. So I currently work four days a week in the office, I'd say, on average. And yeah, I enjoy it. But again, you and I are people people. And <laughs> and I, so again, I, I enjoy building like the camaraderie and the office yeah. hijinks that we get into. Yeah, you can't beat it. The banter, yeah, the lunches. But I think it, it, at the end of the day, I think nobody would disagree with that a hybrid model is probably the way that things are going to be moving forward. And I think that's a great way to go. Last company of the day is WorkRamp. WorkRamp raised a $30 million Series C, which was led by Salesforce Ventures and Slack Fund, as well as SUSE Ventures. And based off of the CEO and co-founder Ted Blosser's uh, blog post on their website, here's a little bit of information about the company. It's basically an all-in-one learning platform for executives, employees, and customers. So they do this through self-guided learning paths, interactive coaching functionalities, and robust certification modules uh, which allows companies that are customers of WorkRamp to build learning experiences at scale. And it goes back to this whole impetus of talent being the heart of the success of a business generally. If you don't have talented people that are running the business, that are making the machine work, the business is going to ultimately fail. And when a company is experiencing growing pains and missing targets, it is often linked to an unmotivated and frustrated workforce. And a lot of these words are from Ted's blog post, but I really liked the way they said it, is that learning is a growth engine. You know I love it when you say impetus. Impetus! Uh, <laughs> so I'll tell you all a little bit more about the product. It is a best-in-class interface with analytics tracking that allows teams to directly correlate learning to business results, which is quite a cool metric to be able to track. 
And they already have some pretty impressive customers that can be used as case studies that we wanted to highlight. So one of these customers is Reddit, which was able to decrease the time it takes to train new sales recruits by one third while improving overall employee satisfaction scores. Then there's Handshake, which increased the average deal size by 15% and doubled revenue since partnering with WorkRamp. Is that good? I, th I think so. We might have to consult the experts. <laughs> it's not bad. And next, there's Quantum Metric, which trained and certified 75% of its customers on product offerings for customer education. Customer education is an interesting one because traditional learning platforms you might think of are meant to train employees. Like maybe it's meant to train them on company processes or things like that. Or there's other platforms out there like LinkedIn Learning or lynda.com that companies can offer to their employees to learn about stuff outside of work too or things that are adjacent to work. But I haven't heard of before a platform that also is designed to train a company's customers in addition to its employees and executives, which to me is a big differentiator. I don't know if you've seen that before. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think I've ever seen that. And I think it's really fascinating that a company is allocating you know, resources towards educating the customers. I think it helps cultivate that product market fit that every company is striving for. And when your customer is educated, to the point where they know what they're looking for and how they can address these certain wants, needs, and desires, it leads to a through and through better experience for both the end customer and the, and the company. So WorkRamp has done well recently, tripling its revenue since the start of 2021, and they have over now 300 companies as customers, which include the ones we just mentioned, as well as Plaid, which I saw on their website. So no small companies, these are big names that are investing in their people, they see the vision that WorkRamp has to empower learning to drive business outcomes. It's pretty cool. And to wrap up this conversation about WorkRamp and tie it to an overarching trend that you and I are both really interested in, I wanted to talk about education tech. And for those that don't know, I work for an ed tech company here in Austin called Interplay Learning, which provides skilled training for skilled workers through simulations. And it's a, it's a much different offering than what WorkRamp is doing, but it has the same goal, which is to convince companies to invest in their people by giving them a learning resource, whether that's something that's job-specific or giving them the opportunity to learn outside of their job, whether that's a hobby or a new interest or something that they can continue their education. Because we were talking about this before the episode, like, Education is undergoing a really big change right now. However fast moving it is, it seems to be slowly evolving with the growth of technology and getting away from this more traditional model. I didn't know if you wanted to kind of jump in there. Yeah, no, this is something we covered in our interview way back with Jack Rule a couple episodes ago and something you and I like to talk about when we're just hanging out on the balcony even, mm. but uh, <laughs> love a good balcony session. But I feel like five to ten years ago, the only method of continued education was the traditional go to university, go through classes, read textbooks, you know, the, the standard model of education. Yeah, and a company might pay for you to go to grad school, which... Right, which yeah. is appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> but nowadays, there are so many platforms offering such high-level education, like extremely close, if not equal to, you know, university-level education. 
and it's just so accessible. You can do it from home. It's free for the most part. Maybe it costs you a little bit, but it's still a fraction of what going to a traditional university would be. But yeah, no, I mean, I think I agree. I, I think we both chose to highlight WorkRamp because it's highlighting a trend that we both resonate with and are reading the tea leaves of society right now <laughs> in that education is becoming so much more democratized and openly accessible. Yeah, and it's companies like these that will accelerate this shift away from the traditional model of go to school, learn what you're supposed to learn, get a traditional job after going to college, if you go to college, and then work your whole life and maybe read some books here and there, like have some hobbies. But I feel like nowadays it's there are so many ways to learn about so many things, whether that just be YouTube, like you're saying. Just yeah, well, I meant to cover, on top of YouTube, there are some very specialized things like Coursera and Khan Academy, Udemy, you know, the list goes on. Yeah. But I agree with what you're saying in the sense that you can fully develop a new set of skills and a side passion and a side hustle if you want just by watching some videos and going through some courses on these free websites. But then there's also these companies like LinkedIn Learning and Lynda.com, which are providing learning resources, paid learning resources for companies to invest in their people and, and offer it as a benefit. Uh, I think WorkRamp is more in this category rather than what you were saying, these free services. I think we're transitioning into a spot where companies are going to be expected to provide a platform, a service like this as a benefit to, to employees. Uh, it's pretty cool to see. And I think to tie this all together to wrap up the episode. Put a bow on it. Put a bow on it. Here we go. <laughs> uh, companies need to invest in their employees similar to what we were talking about with first base you know companies need to offer flexible working options to their employees if they want to retain and recruit the best talent in a similar vein companies need to invest in their employees learning and their continued education whether that be with regard to their job or or the company specifically but also outside of work and the companies that foster learning in their people will end up cultivating a much better culture. And at the end of the day, these folks are going to be more well-rounded. They're going to feel like they're being invested in by their company, by their leadership. Yeah, um, I mean, to, to repurpose that like it's some cambium carbon smart wood, <laughs> I think companies that invest in the personal and professional development of their employees are the ones that will have the highest retention rates and overall employee satisfaction, which I think inevitably floods through to the customer experience and the final product. Yes. And that's how you put a bow on it. Give it to your mama. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that wraps up this episode. Make sure to tune in next week and we'll talk to you all soon. Can't wait. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for your next dose of startups and venture capital on Venture Pill. She told me that she only bumps my music when she's lonely. Thinks my vibes a little low key, okie dokie. That's alright, but.